The annual scientific meeting of the NHS Scotland Mental Health Research Network takes place on the 30th of October in Glasgow and people can attend in person, uh, sign up details below and they can attend online and follow the discussions remotely. So in the kind of run up to this, we've produced a series of podcasts to preview some of the content that will be discussed at the meeting. But please do check out the programme, which is very varied, and I'm sure there's something for everyone in there. So please do follow the hashtag and look out for the podcasts that appear in a run up to the event. Hello everyone, I'm Douglas Badenoch. I've got my mental health hat on today and I'm in the woodland. I'm very happy to be talking to Danny Smith from Edinburgh University. Danny, would you like to introduce yourself briefly? Yeah. Uh, hi, Douglas. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Professor of Psychiatry at Edinburgh University and I'm a consultant psychiatrist. And I guess uh, for the last 20 plus years, I've been involved in the clinical practice of bipolar disorder, but also research in bipolar disorder as well. So which came first for you, Danny, or was it, were you working in practice first um, and then, and that was what, what drew you in this direction? Yeah, I mean, I've always been, had a research interest, even at the start of my clinical training. And it just so happens that my first research post was on bipolar disorder, young people with bipolar disorder. And I've really just kept up that interest, both clinically and in terms of a research focus since then. I'd say bipolar disorder is the most interesting disorder in psychiatry for lots of reasons and uh, and there's lots to be discovered. So it's a really kind of fertile ground to be working in. I'd like to maybe explore that just a little bit before we push on. I mean, so, I mean, could you maybe give us a sense of well, what do we mean by bipolar disorder and what what is it like for people who, who who live with it and what sorts of variations do we see and how it affects people's lives? Yeah, I mean, in general, bipolar disorder is considered to be a mood disorder that's quite severe and it's characterized by recurrent episodes of of severe depression, but also episodes of the opposite of depression, really severe mania, for example. But it's also a spectrum condition. So there are some people who have mostly recurrent depression and relatively little in, in the way of manic symptoms. And then there's a, at the other end of the spectrum, I guess, there are people who, who suffer quite a lot from recurrent severe mania uh, and maybe get, uh, well, they get a lot of depression as well, but you know, and even a smaller number get only mania, for example. So it's a very, although it's a single diagnosis, it's quite a heterogeneous condition and it can affect people quite differently. So. In general, it, it, it can be quite life-changing, a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, I guess. It, it tends to come on for the first time in the early 20s, usually with an episode of mania. Many people have had depression as an adolescent, but then the manic episodes come in in the early to mid-20s. And it can, unfortunately, be devastating for some people at that time in their life when, you know, maybe they're in university or in their first job or they have new relationships, etc., and it can be very, very um, un destabilizing in terms of all their psychosocial functioning. So that can be unhelpful. But for most people, it's characterized, as I said, by recurrent episodes of depression, alternating with recurrent episodes of mania. And I guess it's also important perhaps to note that it's slightly a myth that people are completely well in between these episodes. I think most people would say that they actually most of the time have chronic feelings of low mood or anxiety or 
athletes have impulsivity issues or even have you know fleeting suicidality as well so it's uh, although it's conceptualized as a recurrent disorder with discrete episodes the reality for most people is that it's a kind of uh, can be a chronic condition with low grade symptoms around most of the time Mm -hmm. So people are struggling along with these things any, in between the times where there might be, so. yeah. Yeah, I think so. And that that's not generally perceived very widely. People mm -hmm. tend to think that, you know, most people are completely well in between episodes. Now, now some people are, you know, particularly those people who are, being on, who are on the right treatment, uh, they can do really well. So I think we're going to come on to that, aren't we? But, but essentially the right treatment can be, life-changing as well, really transformative for some people, and they can then function at a very high level after that. So, yeah, let's let's think, move on to thinking about treatment. So so what are the current treatment options? I mean, you, you mentioned there's, it's a bit of a spectrum disorder. Does that affect the choice of treatment or does other, other, other factors that come in? Yeah, I mean, in general, the treatment is obviously multidisciplinary and it's multifactorial. So, uh, for many people, the mainstay of treatment would be a mood stabilizer, and the best mood stabilizer medication is lithium. In fact, lithium is a kind of gold standard medication for bipolar disorder. It's recommended by NICE that everybody with bipolar disorder should be offered lithium uh, as a treatment option, as a first-line treatment option. And it's really very effective for many people in terms of preventing mania, in terms of preventing depression. Uh, and also treating mania and treating depression as well. So about two thirds of people with bipolar disorder will do quite well on lithium. There's a really interesting subgroup of about 10% of people with bipolar disorder who will be super sensitive and do extremely well on lithium and almost have no future issues. I've met mm. patients like that in the past. So, so this, there's a spectrum of response to lithium, but in general, about two thirds of people will have a positive experience of it in terms of preventing episodes in the future. Uh, so that's that's the main mood stabilizer, but there are other mood stabilizers around. You know, some of the anticonvulsant medications are used, some of the antipsychotic medications are used as well. And then the main challenge I would say for treating bipolar disorder, which I kind of alluded to earlier in terms of the bipolar depression angle, is that bipolar depression can be very difficult to treat um, effectively. We know that antidepressants are not particularly helpful for bipolar depression. And um, obviously they're helpful for more kind of straightforward, moderate to severe unipolar depression, uh, but they, they run a risk, A, of not working very well, and B, of making a proportion of people more unstable in terms of the likelihood of a mood relapse if they are only treated with antidepressants. So, so that's an issue because the, the treatment options for bipolar depression are slightly more limited. And atypical antipsychotics are used and some anticonvulsants are used and can be helpful for many people. But I think the research community and the clinical community recognise that the major area of unmet need in bipolar disorder is, is better treatments for bipolar depression and yeah. especially chronic symptoms of depression and bipolar. Hmm. So the depression part in particular yeah, it's a real challenge. What about psychological therapies? Are yeah, those so, offered? So the most evidence-based psychological approach for bipolar disorder is something called group psychoeducation. Um, and I did, I was involved with this um, a few years ago, quite a lot, uh, when we set up group psychoed. Uh, so there's not a good evidence that if you teach people in a group setting, 
of peers with the same diagnosis. If you teach them about the causes of bipolar disorder, how to monitor their symptoms, how to you know, use lifestyle approaches, how to um, get a relapse prevention plan in place. And if you do that in a peer setting over several weeks, that, that actually keeps people out of hospital reasonably well and so that's that's a great treatment approach but unfortunately it's not widely available in the NHS and we would like it to be more available but in terms of the psychological approaches that's the strongest evidence base now some individual people will respond well to CBT cognitive behavioral therapy and there's also approaches like interpersonal social rhythm therapy that have an evidence base where you where that's very focused on these kind of rhythms of interacting with other people and, and sleep and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, there, there are a few psychological approaches. And of course, we hope that most people get a combination of medication and psychological treatments. Oh, thanks very much. That's a really helpful overview. You, you started to talk there about rhythms. So that gives us a nice little segue into the kind of more specific topic of your uh, work at the minute. I was wondering if you could give us an idea of what's the thinking behind this? How did we come at this idea of circadian rhythms? What are they? How do they interact with uh, neurology to to affect bipolar disorder? Yeah, so, I mean, this has been my kind of main area of focus for the last few years, actually. I guess over the years I've come to realise that bipolar can be reconceptualised really not as a mood disorder, primarily, but as a disorder of energy regulation. Um, so mania is characterized by too much energy. And then, you know, euphoria and elation, I think, may be secondary to that. And then depression in bipolar disorder is very much a kind of low energy state. People are extremely fatigued. And then the mood kind of comes, the depression feeling maybe comes sec slightly secondary to that. That's a different way of thinking about bipolar disorder. But, but the evidence is that it's actually possibly better reframed as a circadian disorder of energy. It's very seasonal, for example. So uh, many people with bipolar disorder recognize that in, as we move from spring into summer, they are more at risk of a manic relapse. And conversely, as we move into autumn and winter, uh, they're more likely to have a depressive relapse. And that's reasonably well documented now, but not widely sort of acknowledged in the clinical community, I should say. It doesn't really influence the way services are de delivered, for example. But so that's the seasonal aspect really important because it tells us that, you know, around those periods, we have rapid changes in the amount of daylight that is hitting the earth. And so we go from the long evenings of daylight in the summer into autumn and that that really changes our rhythms of sleep and rest and activity and and it it looks like increasingly there's there's mounting evidence that bipolar people are super sensitive to light so i should have said that the main way that our rhythms of rest activity sleeping etc are regulated is via light that's the primary zeitgeber or the primary way that we synchronize to the to the 12 hour roughly rhythm of night and day so light exposure is super important for humans to regulate their rhythms um, but bipolar people seem to be super sensitive to changes in light exposure and there's some excellent studies recently have demonstrated for example that um, they experience more dysregulation of circadian systems when they're exposed to evening light compared to people who don't have bipolar disorder so that this is 
I mean, to be fair, this is not a, a brand new idea. You know, as far back as the 1970s and 1980s, people were hypothesizing that bipolar people were super sensitive to light and even hypothesizing that lithium worked by making them less sensitive to light, which is something we're trying to investigate now. So it's not a new idea, but but recent sort of technology advances in the way that we can do these experiments has meant that it's more testable at the moment. And I, and I wonder if we, as well if, if part of the, the reason it wasn't developed in the 80s and the 90s and, and afterwards as a research focus was is that we were kind of very preoccupied with psychopharmacology and finding drug targets for uh, disorders. But actually all of this argues for a chronotherapeutic approach to managing bipolar disorder, which is all about light exposure, rhythms of rest and activity, stabilizing in that way. So it's essentially potentially a non-medication uh, focus, which, which patients really want now, actually. So people are very much interested in these kind of lifestyle-based approaches to managing their illness. Thank you very much. That's that's brilliant. So you mentioned patients are quite keen on this. So have, yeah. has your work been influenced by, and are you, you are presu- you're you're working in quite close partnership with with people with lived experience, aren't you? Yeah. Would you like to tell tell us how that's unfolded? Yeah. So since I moved back to work in Scotland, I've been medical advisor for Bipolar Scotland, and I've had quite a close contact with that. I would often go to their peer support meetings and give talks and help them with various aspects of what they do. But when we were applying to get funding from the Wellcome Trust for these two big projects, a really key part of the funding uh, criteria was that it had to be you know, genuinely informed by lived experience in terms of the project design, in terms of project delivery, in terms of analyzing the results, et cetera. So we've had an enormous amount of help via Bipolar Scotland from people who've lived experience of bipolar disorder. So they've helped us shape our research questions. They helped us think about our methodology. They will be involved as we go forward in terms of our lived experience panel. So they'll help us with um, looking at the results and, and disseminating the results. So it's been, so it, it's, a, it's a huge part of both of the projects and uh, it will be over the next five years. And, and it adds an extra layer of sort of value to all the work because we can be confident that what we're doing is acceptable to the community and that they have a real say in how it's interpreted and how it's disseminated as well. So it's been it's been really positive to work uh, with Bipolar Scotland and their membership. Great. It was one of the biggest changes in research, isn't it, in the last sort of 10 to 20 years is people yeah. actually getting serious about helping members of the public to get involved in directing, not just doing research to them, doing it with them. Yeah, absolutely. We maybe could spend the last couple of minutes just talking in a little bit more detail about the studies. There's the Helios BD study and the Ambient BD study. So could you maybe just have a quick description of each? Yeah, so Helios BD is all about testing this light hypersensitivity hypothesis of bipolar disorder. We're going to be testing out if it is indeed the case that people with bipolar disorder are super sensitive to evening light. So we'll do that in lots of ways, actually. And then a secondary part of that is, if that is true, is there any evidence that people on lithium therapy are less supersensitive, sort of more resilient to evening light? And that could be really important because it's a it's potentially a, a brand new mechanism of action of lithium, which has many actions in the body. But this could really open up 
I think the chronotherapeutic field, if if the best treatment in bipolar disorder works even in a proportion of people via a circadian mechanism and a light perception mechanism, that could have massive implications for the way that we stratify, diagnose and manage bipolar disorder using chronotherapy approaches. So using light approaches, using sleep approaches, et cetera, et cetera. So Helios BD is all about a deep dive into all of that. And I, I probably don't have time to go into all the different work packages, but but essentially we're doing it at multi-levels. We're doing it at the cellular level as well as the sort of physiological level. What's what's happening with the Ambient BD project? How's that, how's that slightly different? Yeah, so it's a separate project, uh, but it's obviously focused on bipolar disorder. And really this is making use of some really amazing new technology in terms of the radar sensing of sleep. So the passive detection of sleep. We're going to be using a device called Somnify, which is a tiny little radar device that sits in people's bedrooms and it can work out when people are asleep according to their breathing and their heart rate and their movement and all that kind of stuff. And it's a really appealing, intuitively appealing thing for bipolar people to use because it goes in their room, they forget about it, and we can get data every second of every night for a very long period. So we can get this really dense data collection and we can look at rhythms of sleep across the seasons. And we then, then by assessing people at intervals in terms of their psychiatric functioning and their social functioning, we can use machine learning algorithms to try to work out at an individual level if there are patterns of sleep dysregulation that are predictive of relapse into mania or into depression and what the significance of that might be. So that Ambient BD is all about harnessing new technology for passive data collection to kind of inform risk prediction models for relapse in bipolar disorder. Hmm. So sort of like, well, I remember a few years ago working with some groups with bipolar disorder and there was a lot of people were into journaling and diaries, you know, yeah. and sort of, yeah. it's almost like that, but doing it automatically and focusing on these basic yeah, uh, basic science uh, underlying causes potentially. Yeah, and it's not the key, and this is where the lived experience advice comes in. That the yeah. key to that study, we think, is the low burden of participation on people in the study. We're not going to ask much of them in terms of they won't be keeping daily diaries of mood or sleep or anything. This is yeah. a passive in the background data collection, you know, interspersed with other periods of more intense data collection. But but in general, eighteen months of relatively light touch data collection that that could then be harnessed in the future as a way to give them early warning signs for relapse. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that. I've, I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask the question. What's the balance of cause and effect in, in this sorts of in this relationship? So if we've got some basic science, basic biology around circadian patterns, and we're saying that are they disrupted and that causes the or mental health symptoms uh, or mental ill health symptoms uh, or you know do does being mentally unwell make you behave in a different way and therefore you don't get enough sleep so uh, what's your thoughts about that so i think it ha it's definitely bi-directional so mania becomes a vicious cycle at the start of people becoming manic they they notice that they maybe don't need as much sleep for a couple of nights and they, they don't feel tired and they then the next night they have even less sleep and they feel more energetic and it's almost like you know they are becoming manic but it's being exacerbated and accelerated and a vicious cycle is just being established where 
no sleep leads to more brain dysfunction and more brain dysfunction leads to less sleep and it just spirals and when you think of it like that that's exactly how mania happens you know it's a really often a very rapid dysregulation of rest activity rhythms to be fair i think there's a baseline circadian pathology that that you know we probably all have but some people have it more than others that interacts with light sensitivity and interacts with other genetic or social factors to make people more vulnerable to disruption in terms of their mood and activity and um, but then once those not very nice patterns of depression and mania get established that can then make things even worse in the longer term so they can contribute to further dysregulation so it's it's very much a, a sort of vicious cycle issue i think and i guess that's where lithium comes in so lithium can break the vicious cycle by stabilizing rhythms and by making people more able to cope with you know fluctuations in, in rest activity rhythms and I, I guess it also would give a person with bipolar disorder, you know, with sleep disruption and things like that, that might give them some warning signs or it might give them something else they can focus on yeah. to, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and in the sense that this is something that they can manage or they can do something about uh, in, in addition to just yeah. having a, a pharmacological yeah. uh, intervention. Yeah, that... uh, and and I guess you would be also hoping to be you if if I'm right if I've understood it correctly, you know things like the timing of the day and wh when you take your lithium that sort of thing would yeah. might also be important as well. Yeah, there's a whole there's emerging science of of chronotherapeutics around when you take your medicine in you know in cancer medicine and cardiovascular medicine, but we've ignored it in psychiatry and lithium is a good example. We we ask people to take their lithium at night because. We need to get a 12 hour half, you know, it's a 12 hour half life. So we need to get a stable reading at 12 hours later. And that's when they come into clinic to give their blood sample. But that, that decision to take nighttime lithium is entirely dictated by the need for a 12 hour blood sample. It could well be the case that taking your lithium at a different time of day could potentially be more therapeutic. But, but it's been convenient for doctors to get the blood sample in the morning. And that's really dictated it. So I think there's a whole, there's a whole other area of research around the timing of, of interventions, actually, for sure. Mm. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. Well, it's so good that you and your team are looking into this. Um, and I'll, we'll just wrap up just now. I, I just wanted to thank you very much for taking the time out to give us a quick preview today. The session on the 30th of October is free for anyone to attend online. Yep. And I think there are still some in-person places available. So if people want to find out more about your the, the studies, you'll be talking about them in more detail then, won't you? Definitely, yeah. Um, that would be, be great if people come along. Grand. Well, we'll try and get the message out on Twitter. Please share with all your friends. And thanks for listening. And thanks again to Danny for, for taking part. Thanks, Douglas.